If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. sleepcoolnow.com 1212 This is our number 2 of the World According to Zig podcast. This is one of the very few places where you can still get The full truth about the news, politics, media, sports and culture from a conservative perspective in this crazy upside-down world in which we now live. My name is John Ziegler. I am your host. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com and in hour number 2, generally we try to speak to a guest of some note and we certainly are doing that today because our guest is US Senator Mike Lee. Uh, from Utah who has written a book which you should definitely check out it's called written out of history the forgotten founders who fought big government senator lee welcome to the podcast thank you very much it's good to be with you i want to talk about your book which is outstanding and definitely a must read for anybody who cares about the constitution and our history in this country i'm not sure how many of those people are left but i would certainly agree that this is an important book for those who do care and i'm certainly one of them i also want to ask you about some of the news of the week and what's going on in in the US senate uh well let's start first broadly with the book uh you know with regard to the 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 constitution itself and those who as you say history has forgotten Why do you why why do you believe that history has forgotten these people who fought big government and what is your explanation for how and why this happened In some cases it occurs through benign neglect as people have a lot of historical figures to keep track of in other cases I think it might be more deliberate or at least the result of a conscious decision to shy away from certain aspects of our government for instance the fact that we no longer remember federalism as much as we used to in part because we've tended to favor a large national government one that knows very few limits on its authority and the fact that this message has been perpetuated by entertainment and news media and by educators alike has perhaps caused us to disfavor those figures in history some of whom i describe in this book including Iroquois chief Canasetego including people like Elbridge Gerry who stood for federalism and fought for it during our founding era. I'm a cynic uh, at heart uh, and I'm a somewhat of a pessimist although some people would say that's putting it mildly. Uh I'm wondering Senator Lee with regard to the constitution 
you know, I often use the phrase that you know things have gotten so crazy in our country that we've left the gravitational pull of the rational earth. I'm wondering, have we gotten to a point now where we are so far away from what the founders' intent was with regard to the size of government, with regard to the Constitution? Have we left the gravitational pull of the Constitution itself? Well, we have departed from it. There's no question about that. I don't believe we've moved so far away from it that we can't restore it. And in fact, that's the message of my book, is that if we just bring back the stories, if we help people understand what happened during the founding era, why people were concerned, as many of described in this book were, about the concentration of power in our nation's capital, that that would help reinvigorate a national political dialogue that would help us return to the gravitational pull, so to speak, of the Constitution. I think it's very possible. I think we can still do it. But we've drifted far enough that we're definitely within the danger zone you described. Well, part of the reason why I think we're in even beyond the danger zone, we can certainly you know, have a reasonable debate about where in the danger zone we are, is that, to me, we have lost the cultural debate when I say we, meaning conservatives. We've lost the cultural debate about our founders and about many of our principles. Now some of them are even seen as racist or sexist or whatever ist the, the media wants to use to try to discredit us. And with our younger generation not learning anymore about the Constitution and its true principles and not being told about our founders in a positive way, how do you turn that around? Well, we don't have to rely on the official old-school channels of information exclusively anymore. And when we tell stories like uh, those that I tell in this book, including the fact that I, I feature women in this book and minorities in this book, people whose stories don't often get told in part because it's inconsistent with the narrative, that all people who played a meaningful role in our nation's founding were white male landowners and in some cases slave owners, simply isn't true. And this book tells the stories that make it possible for people to rekindle that interest. All right. I want to get back to to the book and, and specifically um, when you when you talk about some of the people who have been misunderstood or forgotten or written out of history. That's the title of the book, written out of history, uh, how the left has adopted some people uh, in, in for nefarious purposes. But I also want to talk about some of the news of the uh, of that it's currently uh, in the public domain. And obviously this week, the biggest story was the uh, the testimony of FBI, former FBI director James Comey. And uh, and Senator Lee, I'm curious, did you believe that Comey's testimony was credible about President Trump? Well, I think Jim Comey is a credible person, generally. I do think he has damaged his own credibility here by acknowledging something rather stunning, which is that he deliberately had leaked a couple of confidential memos uh, to the media for the specific purpose of trying to encourage the appointment of a special counsel. Uh, that was stunning to me uh, and very, very disappointing. Uh, the, the, the fact that we've got leaks within the government already and the fact that you have somebody in as prominent a position as he was uh, uh, openly uh, uh, leaking things is a little bit discouraging. Well, I can understand you, why you'd be concerned about that, but I'm more concerned about the content of those memos. Do you believe that the content of those memos, as testified to by James Comey, is credible about President Trump? Uh, generally speaking, yes. I, but I don't think that anything approaching obstruction has been established. I don't think there is any 
legal case to be made that obstruction of justice occurred here. So what do you think? I'm just curious, Senator. What, what do you, what? Let's take you say that Comey's testimony is credible. So what do you think Trump's intent was when he got him alone and and basically said, according to Comey, uh, that uh, he hoped that the investigation in the Michael Flynn would be dropped and then later told the Russians after he fired Comey that he had done so to get rid of the Russian problem. How do you interpret that in a way that's benign? If the president believed, as I think he did and does, that there is no there there, uh, then one could easily surmise that what he was saying was, I don't think there is anything there you're going to find. And that being the case, I don't think this investigation is going anywhere that's going to result in uh, a whole lot more substance. So uh, that's my understanding, and that's what I imagine happened. Senator, I understand where you're coming from, uh, but there's many issues here that, to me, have not gotten satisfactory answers. Like, for instance, uh, do you not find it disconcerting or, or troubling that the President of the United States raises the specter of tape conversations with then-FBI Director Comey and then will not say, and no one in the administration will say, whether or not those tapes actually exist. Are you comfortable with that? I find it curious. I am wildly curious to know whether they, in fact, exist. I have no idea whether they do. But my underlying point here is I don't think there was any collusion, nor do I think there was any obstruction. And so I'm not sure that it matters whether, in fact, they exist beyond my curiosity and that of many others. Well, to me, I think it would. It, it, it's more in curiosity because it goes to the credibility of the president of the United States and whether or not he's telling the truth. Uh, because he's denied, he, he said he made a rather strange denial. He didn't say say what Comey said he did, but if he did, it wouldn't have been a problem either. Which uh, to me is is not a really strong denial. Before we get back to a couple, there's a couple other news items I want to talk about and get back to your book, written out of history. I am curious, since you are a student of history and the Constitution, what do you think that our founding fathers would make of this President Trump? Well, I think they would be interested, as people today are, in the fact that he caught on when we stray as badly as we have from the founding intent, uh, that is, the intent that the federal government should be a government possessing powers that, as Madison described them, are few and defined, and those reserved to the states are numerous and indefinite. And from time to time, there are going to be waves like this that people don't see coming, especially when you have a political elite class in Washington that has taken upon itself unprecedented powers. I, I think they would be very intrigued by the fact that... Uh, uh, our, our democratic processes within our Republican form of government still work the way they do and, and can still take control, even though the political establishment doesn't necessarily want to be reined in. Senator, with regard to your history of the, the Constitution and your book written out of history and your expertise in the Constitution, do you believe that the founders would have thought that President Trump was qualified for the job or well-suited for the job of president? Yeah, I don't look at qualifications for this the same way that sometimes people do when they're talking about it. I don't see it as a resume. This is Sure, he doesn't have the typical resume of the typical president. Then again, he never ran to be a typical president. Uh, he came from outside the world of politics, outside the world of government. And so in that, res in that respect, 
he, he doesn't have the same resume that they do. But I don't think the Founding Fathers necessarily contemplated or expected or would have ever demanded that people come from only inside government. But Well, Senator Lee, I, I get that, but I'm not really referring to his resume. I'm talking about, I also asked whether he was well-suited, and I mean that from a personality standpoint. Is this the type of person, see, I don't believe this is that he's the type of person that our founders would have been comfortable at all uh, with as president, regardless of his resume. I'm talking about simply his temperament and his personality and his persona and his value system. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I see your point. I see what you're getting at. I, I think that part is harder to make a judgment on uh, this early in his presidency. I, I don't know that we can say with any degree of confidence what people in the past would have said prospectively about his presidency, not yet knowing uh, where he's going with it. Uh, we've had a lot of different kinds of personalities in the White House over the years. Uh, over the last 230 years or so since we adopted our Constitution, we have uh, had a lot of personalities, and the Constitution survived through all of it. What they would think about him is probably difficult, difficult to discern only five months into his presidency. Senator Lee, last uh, direct question on, on President Trump. My uh, fear uh, on Trump since the beginning, well before his election and even his nomination as the Republican nominee, was that what he was likely to accomplish— was not going to be worth the price that we, especially as conservatives, would pay in principle, and I believe in long-term political loss. Now, you, you just mentioned he hasn't been president for that long, but I believe that that view has been greatly vindicated because as I'm looking at this, I'm seeing very little gain, very little accomplishment, very little accomplishment on the horizon, and I'm seeing a very large price that we are all going to be paying for a very long time for all of this. What do you make of that assessment? I, I think it's a little harsh. I mean, look, he, he has signed into law 13 resolutions of disapproval, 13, 13 times more uh, than we've had under any previous administration since the creation of the Congressional Review Act, uh, taking down late Obama-era regulations. He has, by executive order, brought down a number of other regulations. He's put a true constitutional conservative and Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court of the United States. He's gotten us out of the Paris Accord. Uh, he has fulfilled a whole lot of campaign promises so far. Now, the fact that he hasn't done more uh, doesn't necessarily portend uh, anything dire about the remainder of his presidency. But if he continues through and, and, and sees through the repeal of Obamacare and significant tax reform, I, I think it'll be difficult to look back on the first year of the Trump presidency without calling it a success. Well, let's talk about one of those topics you just mentioned, health care. Uh, the House obviously passed, which with much fanfare, I think it was overblown, uh, a pseudo-repeal and replacement of Obamacare, uh, although I'm not sure technically that's ever even gone to you guys in the Senate. What is your assessment of where that stands uh, in the United States Senate? We have to actually pass something that repeals Obamacare. And to repeal Obamacare in earnest, we have to repeal the Title I regulations in the Affordable Care Act. The regulations in the Affordable Care Act are what has made the price of health care, not just health insurance, but also health care across the board, become unaffordably expensive, making it the number one item, uh, uh, expense item, that many Americans have. That was the whole reason, by the way, why 
they needed to put the subsidies in there, why they needed the individual mandate, is because they knew that the Title I health care regulations would make health care a whole lot more expensive. So if we're going to repeal Obamacare or purport to do so, we have to take down the regs. I don't think the House passed AHCA did nearly enough of that. So if it moves any more in that direction, this is not something I can support. If it moves more in the direction of repealing uh, most or all of the Title I health care regulations, then I can consider it. But So it sounds like you're skeptical of the actual chances of, of this be ever becoming law, the repeal and replacement of Obamacare. Is that a fair assessment or not? You tell no, no, that, no, that's not how I would characterize yeah. it. What I'm saying is it, it's got to get better uh, rather than worse than what the House passed. What the House passed was a little too anemic. It was a little too watered down, and I think it needed to be more aggressive on repealing the regulations. I do think we can get there. Uh, but it's up to us now in the Senate to make sure that that actually happens. Okay, well, let me play devil's advocate with you then, Senator. So it only passed the House by a couple of votes, and that was even before the the, the score of how much it was going to cost. And now that's come in in a way that many people have seen it be negative. I, I view what's happening with health care as kind of like trying to figure out a Rubik's Cube when not all the pieces are in place. In other words, it's a puzzle that can't be solved because if you to get it through the Senate, whatever version is going to get through the Senate is never going to end up getting through the House that only passed the current version, which you called anemic, by a couple of votes. Where am I wrong in that assessment? Well, first of all, I don't think we ever tested the limits on the set of assumptions that went into what could actually pass the House. I mean, look, if you look at what those who were were making the argument that that was all that could pass the House. Much of what they said simply wasn't true. For a long time, they were saying that in light of the Senate rules, all they could pass in the House of Representatives was something like what they originally proposed. We later found out that wasn't true. I, I, among others, met with the Senate parliamentarian and discovered they had never even consulted the parliamentarian. Somebody hadn't done their homework and just either made up an answer or mistakenly spoke out as to what the Senate rules would allow. Uh, and so I don't know why we should give any credit to those same people who say that uh, moderates in the House of Representatives wouldn't vote for anything that actually did what every Republican who has sought federal office in the last seven years has promised to do, which is repeal Obamacare. So, so I'm I'm now getting the opposite sense. From, you know, you're not you know really that skeptical of it. You're you're almost predicting that this will eventually pass and become law. A repeal and replacement of Obamacare is that. I, I'm, I'm saying that it needs to, uh, that, that it needs to pass, but we, we can't uh, spike the ball in the end zone until we've entered the end zone. <laughs> we can't claim to have repealed Obamacare if, in fact, what we do is just tinker with it around the edges and leave the, uh, the, 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 the roots uh, and the substance of the Title I regulations in place. So are you then saying, I want to get this straight, that the House version doesn't really repeal Obamacare? Is that a fair assessment? Not as much as it needs to. Okay. All right. Um, one other political question before we get back to your book, Written Out of History. Uh, you're obviously the U.S. Senator from Utah. There's been a lot of speculation about the other seat in Utah with uh, Orrin Hatch uh, contemplating retirement and rumors about whether Mitt Romney would, would end up running uh, if he does not run for for a re-election next year. What, what can you tell us about what you think is going to end up happening there? Gosh, I wish I knew. Um, this one's difficult to predict. Uh, on the one hand, you, you have uh, Senator Hatch, uh, who 
campaign last time and said that this this term would be his last. On the other hand, uh, there appears to be some discussion now of, um, uh, about whether he might seek another term. And apparently he is considering that. It, he's not saying, hasn't said so far. I, I, I don't know how to predict how that will end. Do you have any um, information that if he does not run, that Mitt Romney has ruled out a run? Because there's been rumors to that effect, too. Do you have any information on that? To my knowledge, Mitt Romney has not ruled out a run. Uh, uh, I, I know there have been um, there was one news account a couple of weeks ago suggesting he was not interested in it. To my knowledge, that's not true. Fair enough. Okay, let's get back to your your book, Senator. Uh, written out of history, the forgotten founders who fought big government. And to me, this one of the many reasons why this is a really important book is <laughs> the size of our government is is such an incredibly important issue and and one that it's so clear cut that conservatives are right about. And frankly, I think even most Americans, if properly asked the question, would agree with us on this. And yet the the perception that has been created, mostly by the news media, uh, is very different from that. And, and one of those people who the left has embraced, and you talk about in your book, is Alexander Hamilton, uh, who obviously now has become famous in pop culture because of a Broadway show, and he's now a liberal hero. And and you write that that's not really an accurate representation of what Hamilton was all about with regard to the the size of, a, of the federal government, even though he's seen as a hero of a strong federal government. Can you correct the record for us on that? Sure, sure. Look, there's there's no question the left has adopted Alexander Hamilton as something of a mascot, and there's no question that he was more comfortable with the idea of concentrated federal power than uh, some of the other founding fathers. That is a far cry from saying uh, uh, what many progressives of today will conclude, which is that he would have agreed with them. That simply isn't true. And you need to look no further than his own words in, uh, among other things, the Federalist Papers, in which he adopted much the same reading of the Constitution as as, uh, James Madison in explaining that the power of the federal government would always be limited and would always be dwarfed by comparison with the power retained by the state governments. That is not to say that that's always what Hamilton wanted, because we know he advocated, among other things, a monarchy at the Constitutional Convention. But it is to say that once the Constitution was actually drafted, and once it went through the ratification process, he knew what they had put together, and he knew what they had put together was a limited-purpose federal government. Now, of, of those people who have been written out of history, as the, the title of your book uh, suggests, who do you think got the 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 worst deal? The the it was it was most unjust, and it was most important for people to understand what their contributions here really were. To answer that one, I'd have to refer to Kanasatego, the Iroquois mm-hmm. Indian chief from the Onondaga tribe, who taught Benjamin Franklin about federalism, about this concept that uh, nations or states can get together and form a confederation. It can agree to defend each other from outside attacks uh, or otherwise agree to govern to a limited degree at a national level while retaining their autonomy at a local level. This is what the nations of the Iroquois Confederacy did, and this is what Canasatego taught to Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, in turn, transmitted that to the other founding fathers, incorporating it eventually into the Articles of Confederation and then later uh, into the Constitution itself. In that respect, Canasatego had a profound impact on the Constitution, but in a way that we've totally neglected. 
Now, in the big picture, Senator Lee, I think it's pretty fair to say, I'm, I'm pretty confident we're both going to agree, that uh, that the founders, if they could see how large our government has gotten and how uh, pervasive our government, our federal government has gotten today, they would be shocked and appalled. Uh, what is there one specific element of government that you think would most shock and most appall the founding fathers with regard to the size of government? Well, one thing I would point out here is that I think it would occur at two levels. Part of it would be they'd be disturbed by the fact that uh, the executive branch bureaucracy makes as much law as it does. The fact that we've got 97,000 pages in last year's Federal Register, and that's the annual cumulative index of federal regulations as they're initially released for public notice and comment and later finalized as compared to usually most years, just a few hundred pages of federal law passed by Congress. I think that would surprise them, as would the fact that the federal government is now in charge of all kinds of things, from labor, manufacturing, agriculture, mining. It regulates things that uh, occur in one state at one time on the premise that because they have economic activity, that amounts to something that can be regulated as interstate commerce. That would stun them and would disturb them. And also in the big picture, Senator Lee, you know, we've already uh, touched on this slightly, but I think it's worth revisiting, especially since we've, we talked about Obamacare. You know, here we have a, a, an allegedly Republican president, a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and here you acknowledged that the so-called repeal of Obamacare, which is, you know, a massive government bureaucracy, uh, was anemic and didn't go nearly far enough. And that was simply... It, it, not even signing something into law. That was just that's a bill that got passed through one chamber uh, of the Congress. Doesn't the difficulty in getting rid of Obamacare prove that it's going to be impossible for this massive aircraft carrier of government that keeps growing to ever be shrunk or turn around? No, it doesn't prove that it's impossible. It does prove that it's difficult. I like your use of the aircraft carrier analogy. I sometimes use that to describe the difference in accountability uh, between the federal government and the states. The reason I advocate for federalism so aggressively is not because states always get it right. They don't. It's just that you can turn a state or a local government around a lot faster in much the same way you can turn around a, a small ski boat or a personal watercraft much faster than you can an aircraft carrier. Fair enough. Anything else that you think we should know about uh, written out of history, Senator Lee? Well, people should know that, uh, that there was a, a slave named Mum Bet who lived in Massachusetts who fought for and won her freedom by bringing suit, by bringing a common law writ of replevin, which is a, a legal action people used to use in order to seek return of unlawfully obtained property. She did that after learning that the Massachusetts State Constitution of 1780, drafted by John Adams, recognized and declared that all human beings are free and equal. And once she learned that, she sued to win her freedom and thereby opened the door for lots and lots of others to earn their freedom as well. And yet, Mom Bet's name has been written out of history, in part because she doesn't fit our modern narratives. Senator Mike Lee, Republican from Utah, thanks so much for your time. Good luck with the book written out of history, and we hope to speak to you again sometime. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. That is uh, Senator Mike Lee with uh, some interesting thoughts, and the book definitely is uh, worth taking a look at because it's such a very important topic. 
I hope you enjoyed that particular interview. As always, all I ask is that you uh, share uh, this particular podcast on social media, Facebook, Twitter, what have you, and I'll share it as well. Make sure that you stay tuned, though, because today we have an extra third hour, a special third hour, in which I'm going to do something I've never done before. No one's ever done before. <laughs> yeah, because of the fact that uh, since our last podcast, there was sentencing in the so-called Penn State scandal of three Penn State administrators, I'm going to tell you what actually did and did not happen at Penn State. I've never tried this before. Uh, but uh, it should be fascinating, so stay tuned for that in hour number three. As always, I ask only two things of you. Share this on social media. Share this podcast on Twitter, Facebook, what have you, word of mouth. And also, do yourself a favor, and if you're one of those people who sleeps at night, and when you sleep, you use sheets, stick around and listen to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.